The peace of Christ be with you. As we gather and settle into our seats, let's take about three deep breaths to be settled into the presence of the Holy Spirit. Sisters and brothers, let us worship the living God. Please rise in body or spirit for the call to worship. Jesus is risen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Jesus is risen indeed. Beloved, we are God's children now. When Christ is revealed, we will be like Christ.
may be seated. Welcome. Welcome to worship here at Westminster. It is certainly a joy to be worshiping with you today. If you're new to our congregation, a special welcome to you. I do invite you after worship out to our patio for coffee, tea, snacks, and especially a, get to, a chance to get to know each other even better. So let's join now in our community prayer that's printed in your bulletin. Let us pray. We are still getting used to this new reality of the resurrection, O oh God. Our wounds are still fresh. Healing has begun to set in. Where betrayals once ruled, heavenly relationship is taking hold. In the footprints of trampled hopes, new life is taking root. Help us to trust this. Help us to accept healing. Help us to find ourselves grounded in God's growing story. Amen. Our prayers continue in quiet. Amen. Friends, know that God's love for us has no beginning and no end. Give thanks, for we are a loved and a forgiven people. This is the good news. Thanks be to God. Amen. So today is our birthday blessing Sunday. If you have a birthday in April, or if perhaps you missed a blessing in a previous month, I invite you to come forward for a blessing. Come on forward, April birthday people. Happy birthday to all of you. Oh, still all right. I have, a, I have a poem I want to share with you. It's by a poet named Anne Weems. It's called Eyes Still Filled. On Tennessee summer evenings, we would lie on our backs, the stars hanging in our eyes, and we would wonder... Wonder what was going on up there among the stars. If we stared long enough, the stars would lift us to them and we would float face to face with the stars in the entranceway of the home of God. When our mother called us to come in because of the late hour, the spell was broken and we would fall back to earth where our backs itched from the grass and our thirst was powerful, but our eyes, our eyes were still filled with the glory of God. So my hope, my prayer for you, not only on your birthday, but throughout this coming year, is that not only your eyes, but your mind and your heart and your soul will be continually filled with the glory of God. May it be so for each one of you. Happy birthday.
would like to invite any of the children who are worshiping with us to come join us here at the front. Welcome everyone. It's good to be with you today. I have a, I have a story I want to share with you today. Maybe some of you know it. It's called Spoon. All right. Guess what it's about. <laughs> oh my gosh. You all just said the same thing. That's weird that you two have the same sense of humor. All right. Here we go. This is Spoon. This is Spoon's family. Look at that. A whole bunch of spoons. On Sunday, Spoon goes to visit his aunt, Silver. He has to be on his very best behavior there. She is very fancy and proper. At bedtime, Spoon likes to hear the story about his adventurous great-grandmother who fell in love with a dish and ran off to a distant land. Lately, though, Spoon has been feeling blue. What's wrong, asked his mother. You look a little bent out of shape. (laughs) Nothing, mumbled Spoon. It's just, I don't know. All my friends have it so much better than me. Knife is so lucky. He gets to cut. He gets to spread. I don't get to cut or spread. Yes, Knife is pretty spiffy in that way, isn't he? And Fork, Fork is so lucky, she gets to go everywhere. I bet she never goes stir-crazy like I do. Fork does get to make herself useful, doesn't she? And Chopsticks, they're so lucky. Everyone thinks they're cool and exotic. No one thinks I'm cool or exotic. Meanwhile... If only Spoon knew what his friends were saying at that very minute. Spoon is so lucky, said Knife. He's fun and easygoing. Everyone's so serious with me. No one's ever allowed to run and be silly with me. Spoon is so lucky, said Fork. He gets to measure stuff. No one does that with me. Spoon is so lucky, said Chopsticks. He can go places by himself. We could never function apart. That night, Spoon's mom turned off the light, tucked him in, and said, You know, Spoon, I wonder if you realize just how lucky you are. Your friends will never know the joy of diving headfirst into a bowl of ice cream. (laughs) They'll never know what it feels like to clink against the side of a cereal bowl or twirl around in a mug of hot chocolate. Spoon hadn't thought of it in that way. He lay awake in bed for a long time. His mind was racing. He had never felt so alive. So that's a favorite story of mine. And I was thinking about that today because later in worship, the adults are going to hear a story about being children of God. And I was thinking about that. What does it really mean to be a child of God? And I couldn't help but think of this book because spoon and knife and fork and chopsticks were all very special in their own way, right? And they were loved by their families and friends in their own way. And I think that is kind of what being like a child of God is like. Very cool. 
that we are each loved in our own way and we have our special gifts and talents and we can do our own special things that God has gifted us with and God loves us exactly who we are for the unique people we are, just as I'm sure Spoon was loved for the unique person Spoon was. So we are all children of God and that is something to celebrate. All right, let's head off to Sunday school. Cammie and Chris are right there. You can follow them out. Go now in peace. Go now in peace. May the love of God surround you everywhere, everywhere you may go. So I want to invite up Michael Hatfield. He has a special message for us about the Capitol campaign. Thank you, Bethany. Good morning, everybody. This is the second time this year I've stood in front of this congregation without the security of my guitar and the company of some singers. Uh, and I, I find myself here as um, representing the advanced commitment part of our capital campaign, um, mainly because I was unpersuasive in my many arguments to Rob and, and Judy while as to why there were people that were much more qualified than me. <laughs> so here I am before you with no guitar. Uh, I want to just take a couple of minutes to tell you my story of how um, our family came to Westminster. We had had a, a four-year posting in Australia. It was a great experience, and our children, my, my son was in... Uh, grade school, uh, Chris Elizabeth was over here at preschool, uh, Strawberry Preschool. Uh, both of them now have children of their own, so it was a few years ago. And our youngest, Megan, hadn't yet arrived on the scene, and so we found ourselves church shopping. We came to this place, and I was just you know, struck by um, the architecture in particular, the, the, the trusses that, that support this sanctuary. And um, it had not been built that many years before. I think it was in the 1990s. And uh, so I was very excited about this church. And my wife, Libby, said, well, you like to come because you just like to look up at the ceiling. <laughs> and I said, that's not true. And I said, well, it's partly true. <laughs> she just looked at me with that Mona Lisa smile. And, and I said, OK, it's, it's true, but it's not the whole truth. <laughs> Because as I would look at the ceiling, I would think about, um, I could almost hear the, the construction crews and what it took to put this, this, these great big members. And, um, and I felt actually a little bit disappointed that I'd missed you know, this, um, this big effort that um, the generation before me had, uh, had come together and made a commitment to build this space you know, from the humble beginnings this church had uh, leading to Finley Hall in the 60s and then the sanctuary here in the 90s, and now here we are a generation later. And you know, so I was curious. I called the, um, the architect, Jim Goring, and I, I got him right away, and I, I said, tell me, about, tell me about these trusses. And he said, oh, yeah, that's called a fireman's hold. And I said, no, tell me the technical term. You know, I want to know all the engineering. He goes, well, that's, that's what we call it. 
And so he sent me, um, you know, he sent me um, an illustration, but, but basically if you look at it, this truss here is supported by the outer wall and it comes across here, but then it's held up by this truss. And this truss here is supported by the outer wall and it comes across and it's supported by that truss and so on. It, it actually took me like 10 years to figure this out, but now, I, now I've got it. And so the fireman's hold, I'm gonna ask Rob to, to come up and let's see if we can, see if we can pull it off. All right, who wants to jump? Anybody wanna get in there? <laughs> so I think you know where I'm going with this. It, it's, um, it's a place where we support and we are supported. And, and our, our family, um, We've been, we've been so lucky. I mean, our um, older kids were able to go on the uh, mission trips, which in those years were down to Tijuana, Mexico. And um, we, we had the usual trials and travails of, of teenagers. And, and our family went through um, the, the ups and downs that all families go through. And I'm so grateful that um, we had the support of, you know, uh, Doug and, and Barbara and um, Rob and Bethany and all the folks in this church that have, have supported us. Um, and now, um, you know, we find ourselves in, um, in a place where um, the, the church has, has grown. And, and you just saw it here. And I, I think some families are still on spring break, but when this place is full, it's very clear that this church has grown. And, it, and it's a, to, to me, it's a sacred space. It's, it's a place where so many amazing things happen, you know, where our kids can learn the message of, of love that, that Jesus taught. And, um, you know, the teenagers understand what it means to go help those that are less fortunate, that need some help, um, where, um, you know, those that are, that are homeless and, and hungry can have just maybe one night of, of respite in a, in a place to just sort of catch their breath. And I've, you know, I've been fortunate to be to some of those dinners and, and, and see the, the look on, their, on some of the, the men's faces when they can just you know, get off the street for a while. And I don't know how many of you saw, but when this sanctuary was filled with backpacks, um, you know, the, the, the folks that led that effort, it was one of the most touching moments I've ever experienced in this church. The backpacks were um, filled with essentials for immigrants that were, you know, looking for um, safety and economic, you know, security and, um, you know, a place to start again. So a lot of amazing things happen in this space, and, and now it's, it's time for this space to grow. And um, so I, I'm asking you all to think about the, the generation before us that made this space here happen and think about uh, your role in um, helping the church's physical space grow with, with the community. And if, if you're in that place, then um, you know, as part of the campaign, you, you have my uh, joy and my gratitude. Uh, at the same time, if you're in a place where you need to be supported, know that we're all in this together. Um, we're all here together. We're all uh, supported. And uh, we look forward to moving forward in faith and, and, uh, for 2020. So 
Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Michael, for your leadership and for all those who've been involved in this important process, which will largely not affect this gorgeous space, as most of you know by now. It will mainly be to upgrade and expand that space, which will increase our ministry capacity in a number of ways. A couple of things I want to um, uh, offer you right now and invite you to. Uh, the first is next Saturday, if you haven't yet been to one of these Ford and Faith dinners, and many of you have, but if you haven't, we're having one at the church, and you can sign up out at the Narthex. It's just a chance for you to learn in a little more detail about what we're hoping to do here and to give your perspectives as well and to have your questions answered and to get some materials. So please sign up for that if you haven't been to a dinner yet. Uh, also, there's another important event that you can be holding in prayer and you can be participating in. On April 25th, is our first opportunity, we'll have two in-person opportunities for people to give their pledges to this project. The second comes on June 3rd. After that, there'll be a mailing. The first will come April 25th. Now, in the secular world, often you have a quiet campaign and then a public campaign, and all the big donors come to the quiet campaign, and then everybody else, the rest of us, show up for the latter part. That's not how we do it in the church. In the church, we're open, and we're inclusive all the way along. So this first event, which is called the Advanced Commitments event, is for those people who already feel informed and have already prayed about it and feel inspired to make a leading gift that will help inspire the rest of the congregation. If you're feeling like you fit into that category, um, come and talk to me or to Judy or to Carol Kaufman or anyone on the team so we could have a meeting with you in advance, and then we'd love to have you. Uh, a part of that April 25th event where people will pledge in person. Now, while I say that, I want to also be clear that those pledges are confidential. Your pledge is not shared in the amount uh, to anyone else. In fact, not even the team will be looking at your pledge amount, so you can feel safe in that. And last but not least, if you come this uh, to the Advanced Commitments event on the 25th, you will get to hear and see Michael back reunited with his guitar uh, and with Barbara Kessel's voice, and they will be uh, blessing us with their talent. So that's a lot to think about, but I want to make sure that that message is spread far and wide. And now let's continue worship with our joys and concerns. So we do like to share with each other our joys and concerns so we can be in prayer with and for each other, our community, the world. If you have something to share, I invite you to stand and let us know. I'll start, and then I'll get to you. Um, keep in prayer the families of two folks. First, uh, Jackie Okolsky, whose memorial service was here in the sanctuary yesterday. Not a member of Westminster, but a friend and certainly a member of the Tiburon community. And then this coming Saturday, we certainly keep in prayer the family of Carl Atkinson, as his memorial service will be this coming Saturday. Ruthie? Absolutely. Traveling mercies is spring break is ending for many today. Safe travels. Other joys or concerns, Peter? Yes, there's a number of people who are not able to make it to church on a regular basis mm -hmm. uh, for one reason or another. And I would think the people of the particular church are uh, so thankful for them. And it also gives us a sense. We, I think there's a lot of people that we should pray for that uh, 
thank you for that reminder. Peter's lifting up those in our community, our congregation, who are mostly homebound, can't really get to worship as often as they would like. You lifted up two specifically, Joe Batchelor and Jim Hampton, uh, that we continue to pray for them and reach out to them when necessary. Yeah. Yeah, I, I gotcha, Jim Hampton. Others? Well, let's have a few moments of quiet, and then I'll lead us in the Lord's Prayer. So let us pray. Gracious God, you hear the prayers of your people, and they're offered in the name of the one who teaches us to pray together, saying, Our
sort of hate to disturb that, but I will. The first scripture reading is from Luke chapter 24, 36b to 48. Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and terrified and thought that they were seeing a ghost. He said to them, Why are you frightened? And why do, you, why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. See that it is me. Touch me and see, for a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, while in their joy they were disbelieving and still wondering. He said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, and everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. This is holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God. I don't know how many of you saw during the children's time the one child who stood up while Bethany was reading, and then kept inching forward toward the book. I think that's how God wants us to approach the word. So inch if you'd like. Second reading is from 1 John 3, 1 to 3. Listen for what the Spirit is saying. See what love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. What we do know is this. When he is revealed, when Christ is revealed, we will be like him. We will see him as he is. And all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. This too is holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God. My wife tells me about this pastor she knew who every time he baptized a baby at the conclusion of the baptism would hold up the child before the congregation and say, See what love the Father has for us that we would be called children of God. And that is what we are. In this tradition, when we baptize a child or an adult, we don't simply confer a blessing on them. 
we tell a beautiful story about them and we tell them a beautiful story about themselves and we promise together to remind one another of that story their whole life long. It's, an, it's a story about who they are and where they fit in all of this and where they can be rooted no matter where they're planted all their life long. And we shouldn't ever underestimate the importance of being rooted in such a story. Because the stories that we believe about ourselves and the stories we believe about others and the stories they believe about us determine so much of human life and human interaction. Guy Dowd from Brainerd, Minnesota, was Teacher of the Year, National Teacher of the Year in 1986. And he tells this defining story about one of his students at the high school where he taught. His name was Chris, a reserve player on the football team. And I'll recount it to you as he tells it in a speech he gave some years ago. Mr. Dowd says this. I'm sitting in school after the bell is rung. It's about 5.15 and I'm anxious to get home. And I look up at my door and there's Chris, number 85. My first year as a teacher and here stands number 85 with his football jersey on. Hey, Chris, what are you still doing here? Oh, I, I had to pick up some books. And Chris kind of stood there and shifted his weight back and forth from foot to foot. He says, you know, tonight is parents' night at the game, and at halftime they have all the senior football players go out into the field, and then they invite their parents to come down on the field and stand behind them. And, well, I, I don't know if you know this or not, but, you know, my, my folks are divorced, and my dad lives in California, and my mom, well, well, she's out of town. And, and the coach said that if our parents couldn't be with us, that we should ask somebody that, well, we respect. And I was going to ask you sooner, but, but hey, if you can't pee at the game, it's okay. I said, well, I'm going to be at the game. And I'd be very, very proud to stand up with you. And then Chris sat down on the edge of a desk and, and said, you know, I haven't gotten into the game this year. And I said, oh, well, what was it a couple of weeks ago that I heard about you? He said, yeah, I was, uh, I was scout team player of the week. I said, yeah, well, well, what does that mean? He said, well, scout team runs the opposition's offense and the defense beats us up. <laughs> I said, oh, well, well, I'm sure you'll get in the game tonight. And I went to that game and sat up there in the stands and cheered and kept watching number 85, who was also cheering and patting people on the butt when they came off the field and congratulating them. And halftime came and I went out and I was introduced and I stood behind number 85. And I remember as I stood there, I prayed that should I ever have children someday, I prayed that they would never have to have substitute parents. And the third quarter started. And we had a 17-point lead, and number 85 still hadn't gotten in the game. We were still playing all our good players, our best players, players who started on both defense and offense. They were going both ways, some 80 guys dressed for the game, and we were playing 14 or 15 of them. 
Now, hey, I'm not questioning anybody's coaching decisions, but by the fourth quarter, I was standing up yelling, put number 85 in the game! (laughs) And as the clock ran down, and we won by 20 points, and number 85 hadn't made it into the game, I might as well have been his parent because I sat there with big tears in my eyes. And on Monday, I didn't know what I was going to say to Chris. And here I am on hall duty, and here comes Chris. And I said, well, you guys sure whipped him. And Chris said, yeah. And then he said, you know, I didn't think I was that bad that if you put me in the game with two minutes left that I would have blown a 20-point lead. That's the story that Chris came to believe about himself in football and in life, that he was so bad, that he was so incapable, that he was so invaluable, that his mere presence with two minutes left in the game would lose his team a 20-point lead, which, if you know anything about football, is impossible. Unless you're the Atlanta Falcons, different. (laughs) I digress. Largely impossible. There's another painful story in that narrative. It's that line when he's standing out there on the field, Mr. Dowd with a student, and he prays that his kids will never have to have a substitute parent. Now, that's, that's a tricky line, actually, because, in fact, people who have played, quote-unquote, substitute parent roles in our lives and in our children's lives, some of whom have become real parents, uh, well, they're the best people there are in the world. They are true angels. So, I, we don't hear that as a way to to denigrate that role, I think what Mr. Dowd is saying and what I agree with is this notion that so many of us carry pain in our lives because of our relationships and our families, pain from the absences we experience and sometimes pain from the presence of those relationships and the character they take on. We can experience that. And for some, some people who have that kind of pain in their family relationships, the language you heard in that letter from 1 John where God is talked about as Father can be tremendously comforting. I know a woman who endured much pain in her family of origin. And she once said to me that she took great solace in constructing what she described as a heavenly family. That made her feel strong and safe. Now, for others, that language of God as Father is actually a source of pain or discomfort for all kinds of reasons. And we recognize that whenever we speak of the great mystery, which is the divine, which is the sacred, every term we pick, every image we hold up is limited and can't quite get there. So we grab the ones that speak to us, and we're free to let go of the ones who don't. And after all, this passage isn't only about who God is and how God is, but it's also about who we are and who we become. It's not the part of the passage we often quote, but it's right in there. And when Christ is revealed, we shall be like him. Do we believe that? I have
ask that because in the church, so often we spend all our time building a Christ that is so beyond reproach that we accidentally create one that's also beyond approach. He's so enlightened that we couldn't dare be like him or move through the world like him. And so we don't try and nothing would make Jesus more sad if you ask me. No, we will be like him, says that beautiful letter, and can be like him. I think that's the story that Mr. Dowd understood deep in his soul. An avowed Christian, Mr. Dowd uh, recognized that right where he was in life, as a high school teacher, he could very much be like Christ, with or without using those kinds of words with his students and with his colleagues. And he used to practice it. One of the things that he would do regularly is he would walk into his classroom when his students weren't there. And he would sit down in each of their desks and pray for them. One desk after another until he worked his way throughout the whole room. Knowing he could be like Christ exactly where he was in life. Jesus goes to great lengths in a moment that it would seem like we couldn't relate to him at all. He's been raised from the dead, kind of a new experience for most people. But in that moment, he goes to great lengths to show us how like us he is. Because what does he do when he appears to them in that resurrection story you heard earlier? He shows them the scars on his hands from the crucifixion. And then he asks them for a bite to eat. It's a funny kind of encounter for us, but why is it significant? Because the Bible angels don't eat. And Jesus is making clear to people he is no ghost and he is no angel. He is Jesus of Nazareth, raised from the dead. And what a statement it is that the point of universal connection for Jesus and the people is his set of wounds, his scars. Because who doesn't have those? All of us have an experience of pain or suffering. Now, of course, each in our own measure and each in our own form. And maybe many of us don't have the kind of pain that the children in Syria are feeling right now. Maybe some of you do. But actually, that becomes our point of connection to them and to one another and to all people and to God. I don't believe, as some might, that God gives us our sufferings or pain or trials so that we might somehow grow closer to God. I think there can be a perversion in that, and I think some spiritual movements get off track seeking out suffering and wallowing in it. But I do think it provides the occasion for some deeper connection. Henry Nouwen, that famous priest and writer, in his book, The Wounded Healer, talks about our wounds as the site for God to enter in and create something new. It becomes the occasion for our healing. 
And therefore, if we are to be like Christ, the goal is not to have a scar-free existence and a Teflon skin that nothing can touch. Rather, it's to recognize our pain and our wounds and to open ourselves up to receive healing. Jesus doesn't show up with gaping wounds in the resurrection. He shows up with scars which means that he too has received some healing that hasn't erased it, but has transformed it into something new, something more wonderful than could have been imagined before. Every couple months or so in this church at 11 o'clock, we've been having healing services. And for those who've come, they've largely been quite powerful. And so we want to bring those into this space, 8.30 and 10 next week, an occasion for healing. Before you get excited or nervous, this is not the kind of stuff you see on TV where people are going to fall out, although that would really be good for my ego. But but more of these experiences have been quite calm and subdued and peaceful and safe and uplifting. And so in preparation, I'd like you to start thinking about that, thinking about healing in a broad sense and what you might bring to those services next week. No one will be forced to get up or do anything, but you'll be invited to come to a station. There will be a pastor and a member because we do this together, right, where you can anoint yourself with oil, where you can be touched with a gentle hand and you could be prayed over. And think about healing broadly. We have physical wounds, of course, We also have emotional wounds. Many of us have spiritual wounds, familial, relational wounds, communal wounds. God knows we've got societal wounds. And all of that is an opportunity not to uh, inflict our pain on others, but to invite God's healing touch and be spreaders of that healing in the world. Now, I know that for some, this doesn't feel like important work. But nothing could be more important work. Some will say, well, I don't want to take time to do that. I'm fine. I need to get out there and do something and do something for the world. And God love you for that impulse. I have it too, in all honesty. But you know, the world doesn't need the productivity of high-functioning people who haven't tended to their wounds, at least a little bit. Because those people with their good hearts often do more damage than they do good. And so it's a discipline for Christians to acknowledge their pain and to slow down enough to experience some healing. Because once you've tasted that kind of healing, once you've experienced it, even in a glimpse, and you don't have to be made perfect, you don't have to be made totally whole, but once you've had an experience of that just a little... Well, then you are uniquely prepared to go out and be a healer in the world. So, one more story about a school kid, this time a sixth grader, who had a taste of that healing touch, and it transformed him uh, for the rest of his life. Oh, I don't need this. It's in here. Okay, good. He was an awkward kid, kind of big not very athletic. And so you can imagine how nervous he was when he got a new phys ed teacher. 
gym, which is hell on earth for about half the population, right? And that teacher's name is Mr. Card, and you can imagine how scared this awkward sixth grader was when Mr. Card came in and said hi and stuck out his hand that had never happened before to him and said, I've heard about you. What had he heard, thought this awkward kid, and what string of embarrassments was about to ensue in gym class. But that's not the way Mr. Card was. Mr. Card was positive. He was uplifting. He was supportive of the kids. He didn't make them feel ashamed. In fact, he did uh, far better than that. And at one point, he turned to this kid. They were playing football. Mr. Card was quarterback, as Mr. Card was always the quarterback. And he said to this kid, he said, okay, you go out long. I'm going to throw you a pass. This kid had never been told to go out to catch a pass before. He was always told, you block. You're big. Block. That's all I ever knew how to do. Mr. Card said, no, you go out long for a pass. So he takes off as much as he could take off. Running down the field, Mr. Card drops back and he throws him a bomb. And there's this shaky, awkward kid watching this ball come at slow motion. And it comes to him and he catches it. And that sixth grade boy was the sixth grade version of Guy Dowd. That teacher I told you about at the beginning. And his life was forever changed by that moment. Not because Mr. Card threw him a pass, but because Mr. Card, in throwing him a pass and in teaching him the way he did, told him a different story about himself. A story different than the story he heard a thousand times from the rest of the world in all different forms. A story that said, I trust you, and you're worth something, and you're capable, and you can be something. And Mr. Dowd, Guy Dowd, grew up to tell that story to thousands of his own students in his words and in his deed, including number 85, who needed to hear it from someone. And that story is the greatest story ever told, and it can root you wherever you are in life. And it's as simple as this. See what love the Father or mother, has for us that we would be called children of God. And that is what we are.
You may be seated. I want to highlight just a couple of things happening in the life of our church and then encourage you to take a look at the bulletin for other events, both here in the church and in the greater community. First, throughout the month of April, we are having a forward in faith Bible study as we look at different people in the Bible who have moved forward in faith. So immediately following worship in Fellowship Hall, there will be a um, study on Nehemiah by Judy Freedy. Where are you? There she is. Judy will be leading us this week, so I invite you to join her for that. Um, and then this coming week, both at Wednesday at 9.30 and then the following Sunday, we'll be looking at the book of Acts. So you're welcome to join in on that. Yes, Michael? Can I make just one clarification? Sure. It's going to sound like a clarification. <laughs> Go for it. Twenty ninth of April, yes. Michael's just excited to be reunited with his guitar, I think. <laughs> Finally, I want to let you know about an, a special Earth Day hike that will be happening next week in the afternoon on Sunday. It's at Phoenix Lake. Parking is sometimes difficult there, but we have some other parking arrangements made. So if you're interested in that hike, I encourage you to be in touch with Bob Miller. His email is here in the bulletin and let him know and he can tell you uh, about the parking situation. But that's a hike that will be fairly accessible for everyone. So I invite you now to stand as you are comfortable for our closing hymn. It is number 547.
as you go from here, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God who is Father and who is Mother of us all, and the sweet communion of the Holy Spirit be with you this day and every day. Amen.